Father God, we, we ask this morning that you would prepare our hearts now as we come before you, as we come into your presence to hear what you might have to say to us this morning. We ask for your spirit to convict us, to soften our hearts, to make us susceptible to your leading, to your authority, to your word. We ask that, that you would help us to lay down our burdens, our anxieties, the things that, that might distract us and keep us from you, Lord. And as we turn towards you, we ask that you would draw us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. The cultural climate in which we live today is one that is largely skeptical of authority. Perhaps some of you today, maybe owing to your own experiences with authority, you find yourself agreeing largely with the skepticism. We live in a post-truth era, one that is filled with fake news, and when it's real news, it's of authority figures failing in every which way. And so we don't know what to trust, or even who to trust, except ourselves. And so we buy into the belief that authority is ultimately derived not from looking outside to other individuals, and especially not to other institutions, but looking within, at yourself as a sole arbiter and authority of your life. But this very belief, this way of life, is challenged. We're challenged when we come to Jesus. We remember his words of authority to us in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as Natalie mentioned, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark these past couple months, and the title of this sermon series is Follow Me. It's a, it's a title, it's a command, it's a phrase that implies authority, deference from those who follow us, and authority given to the one being followed, Jesus. At the beginning of the Gospel, of this particular gospel, we see Mark pointing this out, Jesus' authority out, in the very first chapter. So Mark 1.22 we read, They were astonished at his teaching. The crowds uh, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. A few verses later, the people were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And in our passage today, which is from Mark chapter 12, 13 to 44, we're going to see this continuation of this emphasis on Jesus' authority, and also what that demands of those who follow him. Now, our passage Mark, from Mark 12, 13 and following, it's situated in this larger section that, that began a little bit earlier on in chapter 11, verse 27. And there we read about the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they're, they're coming. These are the Jewish authorities at the time, and these leaders come to Jesus as he's talking in the temple. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, we see there that the problem was not simply what Jesus was doing, but what right 
he had to do them in the first place. Our, our passage is continuing this conversation between Jesus and these Jewish authorities. The, the scene hasn't changed yet. Jesus is still in the temple, the most authoritative place for Israel. He's still before the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the most authoritative body, perhaps, for Israel. And in this place and before these people, Jesus now opens up a window, perhaps, into understanding who he is, his own authority. You might even perhaps see it as this one last chance for these authorities to acknowledge who Jesus is. Because after this, Jesus' public ministry, it ends. He leaves the temple never to return, and the events of the road to the cross begin to unfold. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, maybe perhaps if you have your Bible apps, uh, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 12, 13 to 44. We're going to be working our way through this passage. If you don't have a Bible or maybe you don't, haven't downloaded this, uh, one of those Bible apps, uh, I'll have the, the scripture on our PowerPoint as well. But it'll be good for us to kind of flip through, look at the context, look at the passages and the different verses. Now, as we work through our, our way through our passage, if we had more time, we'd be able to explore the different implications of what Jesus is teaching on all these different subjects, because it's a long passage. But because it's a long passage, we're going to take our, our lens, we're going to zoom out, we're going to see how all of this kind of ties together into Jesus' authority and what that demands of us. It's going to be kind of looking at different arcs within a TV show season. Instead of looking at, uh, you know, different in episodes within the season which have their own point, their own plot, we're going to look at, you know, the entire season as a whole, the entire passage as a whole. And see how it all ties in together. And so this is what we're going to see in our passage. Jesus demonstrates his divine authority through his teaching. Verses 30, 13 to 37. Now throughout this passage, as we work our way through it, Jesus is repeatedly called teacher. That's exactly what he's doing. He's teaching with divine authority. And he's going to do it on four topics for us this morning. The first is this, on taxation, 13 to 17. We read there, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So right from the start, we see the Jewish authorities still in the midst of this confrontation and this conversation over Jesus' authority. They are coming not just to ask questions, but to trap Jesus in his speech. It's a trap. They don't really care about his authority. They just want to undermine him. And feeding into this trap was the issue of this Roman tax. 
See, the Jewish people had to pay this imperial poll tax to the, the Roman Empire. They did it with what they call denarius, this Roman silver coin equal to about a day's wage. Now, one of the issues is when you take a look at this coin, it had the image of Caesar on it. And below it, the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And the other side bore an image of Tiberius's mother with the inscription, high priest. And so if you can imagine for the Jewish people, this was not only religiously offensive, but, but also even somewhat idolatrous for this coin to bear this graven image and to use words that to them should not even be applied to any human being, much less a pagan Roman. Now for everyday use, the Jewish people would kind of avoid this predicament by using copper coins, coins that were locally minted, didn't have any image. Now for the Jewish authorities now, they're coming with this whole issue. They come and challenge Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now it seems like a no-win situation because if you think about it, if Jesus says yes, he loses the favor of the people who, who don't like taxes, who don't like paying taxes to the Roman Empire. If Jesus says no, he aligns himself then with all the previous Jewish rebels, the, the Jewish zealots who rebelled because of, in part, of this tax, rebelled against the empire. And then for Jesus, he brings the entire Roman empire down upon himself. Now Jesus sees through all this because he's Jesus. He knows it's a trap. In fact, he asks him, why are you trapping me? Why put me to the test? And so he attacks the underlying assumption of the Jewish authorities, which for them was that God and government are always in conflict. The Jewish authorities' question assumes conflicting loyalties, allegiance to God or deference to the government. Either or, not both and. But we see that this is not necessarily always the case. And so Jesus de demonstrates his divine authority in two ways, at least. First, he, he maintains his own authority while compromising that of the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders. So in verse 15 we read, he knows their hypocrisy, so he says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And lo and behold, they, they bring him one. Apparently, the Jewish leaders are more complicit in this whole tax situation than they lead people to believe. Jesus didn't have a denarius. Not sure if he had any money on him at all. But the Jewish leaders are able to pull one out easily. And second, having taken this coin, he says that famous statement that some of us know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In this one statement, he is affirming that duties to government don't always infringe upon ultimate duty to God. Now, the Jewish leaders there, the way they phrase it, they're talking about paying taxes to Caesar, literally giving the taxes to Caesar. Jesus, however, he's changing the language because he's not talking about giving. He's talking about giving back. There's a sense of ownership here. Not what we own, but what 
God owns, what Caesar owns. So he says that the coin has an image of Caesar. It belongs to him. Give it back to him. Likewise, give back to God what belongs to him. You know, some of you who have been attending our church for a long time, we, we have these phrases that help us explain different parts of our service. So if you realize it, you know, every time the worship leader finishes the worship set, we talk about tithes and offering. How does it go? Now's the time for a tithes and offering. It's time where we give back to God a little of what he's already given to us. If you're here for the first time, and so on and so forth. Well, we explicitly say give back to God a little of what he's already given to us. And what belongs to God? Everything. Yes, our money, but also ourselves. Especially when we consider that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26-27. We belong to God. Jesus is emphasizing God's ownership and authority. It's going to be an authority that Jesus himself lays claim to. And in this passage, he demonstrates that authority in part by speaking for both Caesar and God. The second way that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority in our passage is this teaching on the resurrection. In 18 to 27, we read, And the Sadducees came to him to say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now Jesus responds to them. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give it in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's not to say that we are angels, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're wrong. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, this, this afterlife. And, and so they want to poke holes in this belief by making an appeal to the extreme. Who will this woman be married to in the afterlife, in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God, after having been married to seven different brothers? They make an extreme hypothetical case to show the absurdity of this belief. But Jesus, again, being Jesus, sees through it all. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians who had this wrong assumption about God and government, so too the Sadducees here have a wrong assumption about the kingdom but life in the kingdom. They assume wrongly that the afterlife is simply an extension of our life on earth. But Jesus says, no, that, that's not quite right. You know, there won't be marriage 
in the kingdom because the, the, perhaps the categories in which we understand our life here on earth aren't going to be necessarily the same categories in which we picture or understand the greatness and the glory of the kingdom. And he adds further. He replies, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, in this hypothetical scenario, raised by the Sadducees, their underlying principle from which they are operating from is that death ends covenantal obligations. That's why, in their hypothetical scenario, the woman was free to remarry. Because the death of her husband ended the covenant of marriage, the marital bond between them, and freed her to marry the brother. Now, Jesus takes that same principle and says, okay, operating from that same principle, if we say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, then God's covenantal promises to them was limited to their earthly lives. It renders God's promises finite and unfulfilled. Instead, however, we see throughout the entire narrative of Scripture that God continues to remain faithful to the covenant, to his people. And that is due in part to the fact that, in some sense, Jesus sees now that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Jesus also demonstrates his authority by flat-out calling out the Sadducees. What they claim to know best, and that's scripture and power being a ruling body, they actually know least. Is this not the reason, he says in verse 24, you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So that's the second way. Two more. The third way that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority is on scripture. Verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, the scribes, they had a, a practice of trying to summarize all 613 commandments as succinctly as possible. That, that's what the scribe was getting at when he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Not necessarily what, you know, one commandment out of all 613 is, is greater than the others, but kind of how, how does one cap, encapsulate all the others? And some of you who, who are in my pre-study or especially those in ICF and CARES now, 
you know, you, you'll get that, I'll ask you sometimes, you know, summarize the passage. What's the big idea? What's the main idea? You know, same thing with my sermons. Jesus responds with two commandments that are held together. The most important, the one that encapsulates everything, the big idea, perhaps, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's first situating all of this in who God is. The imperative, the command comes from the indicative, the statement of who God is. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now for the scribe who perhaps he's coming to Jesus to, to make a judgment on Jesus, to see what Jesus thinks, how great of a teacher he is, he leaves now with Jesus passing judgment or making a judgment on the scribe. A judgment filled with authority, divine authority, when we hear Jesus say to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. An authority that allows him to make a judgment on who is on, actually at the threshold of the kingdom of God. Now after these three questions, Jesus turns the table. No one's asking any more questions. And now Jesus, it's his turn. And he asks a question himself. One commentary, I, I like how you put it. After a day of questions comes the question of the day. And in this last question, Jesus is pointing to the authority of the Messiah. An authority he himself has because he's the Christ. So in verses 35 to 37, as Jesus taught in the temple, again, the scene hasn't changed yet, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus' point dug into the expectations the people had for the Messiah. He was to be the son of David. And that's what some of the people called him, some of the crowds called him, referred to him as the son of David earlier on. But what did that mean exactly? And he poses the question, how can the Messiah be David's son if David is calling him Lord, this position or this title of authority? I mean, can you imagine for some of the parents in this congregation right now, you like change your hashtag for your kid, you know, hashtag Lord so-and-so, first day of preschool. It's kind of absurd. And yet it's a question Mark also poses to his readers. The answer is that the Messiah, the Christ, is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. And that means glory and honor and status attributed to the one who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus. Now by the end of this series of questions, perhaps Mark hopes to impress upon his readers and, and us as well the same feeling of the crowds at the beginning of his gospel. They were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? a new teaching with authority. 
Now, let's be clear for us today, this morning. Yes, the passage emphasizes Jesus' teaching. But what we have here is not a case to be made for Jesus being the greatest human teacher of all time. That's something that perhaps the crowds missed. That's, that's all they saw. That this was an authoritative teacher. But not one who was divine. The, the point here is that Jesus' teaching points to an authority that is divine. The authority of Christ Messiah, the Son of God. Our Savior King. Because if we don't see that in our passage today, we miss the entire point. In fact, if we, we miss the entire point of the Gospel of Mark if we simply reduce Jesus to being a great teacher and not the Son of God. Now, having kind of understood maybe perhaps what, what Mark is getting at in terms of emphasizing Jesus' authority, this begs the question, what does it mean now then? Right? This is the indicative. This is the statement of what is. This is who Jesus is, his authority. What does that demand then? How do we respond to that? Well, it demands an all-out love for God and neighbor, shown in part through sacrificial giving. Jesus' authority demands an all-out love for God and neighbor, shown in part through sacrificial giving. Or put more simply, Jesus' authority demands all of me. So we read in this last section of our passage this morning. In his teaching, again, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. But they're also the ones who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came. She put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In this last portion of our scripture, Jesus continues teaching with authority. And he draws this contrast between the scribes with their displays of authority and this poor widow with her display of devotion. Devotion that was costly to her, that meant something. With the scribes, we see that self-aggrandizing displays of authority disregard love of God and love for neighbor. Jesus issues a warning, beware of the scribes. It's a warning to us as well. They connected their authority to their clothing 
to their outward displays of empty piety as they're throwing money into the offering box like it didn't matter. Jesus' authority instead is connected to his teaching. He points out that these scribes, they like to walk around in their long robes, put themselves in places of honor. Their display of authority ultimately, however, disregarded love of God and neighbor. They devoured the widow's houses, the very widow that we see coming on the scene right after. And this would result in their demise. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus, then, he draws his disciples' attention to another person, the poor widow. We see through her that discipleship and devotion is shown, in part, through sacrificial giving. Now, as Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, as you follow on in this narrative, he's kind of sitting there people-watching. Jesus is a people-watcher. It's pretty awesome. So he's sitting there, he's watching as these people come by and they put in large sums of money. Again, putting on display their generosity. Because that's what they care about. External appearances. But here comes this poor widow. She puts in two small copper coins. The smallest currency in circulation. Here was a widow's two cents. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, what mattered was not so much the amount of the gift, but the devotion of the giver. That doesn't mean that, of course, that amounts don't matter. They do. It's simply that their, their scale of evaluating things was, was misaligned. Discipleship and devotion is shown in part through not just giving, but sacrificial giving. Giving that comes at a cost to us because of the one who paid the cost. For us, giving that comes out of a heart of devotion and worship and prayer, giving all of us to the one who gave it all up for us. Here was a woman who, out of poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Whereas the scribes, we find earlier on that they're ready to seek Jesus' life. Here, this woman is ready to give up her own life. Perhaps literally or metaphorically for Jesus. And the way it's kind of phrased here is remarkable when we connect it to what Jesus was talking about earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus' authority demands all of us, all of you, and all of me. There's an old kind of joke, I guess, that describes the difference between sacrifice and generosity. Generosity is a chicken bringing eggs to breakfast, 
and sacrifice is a pig bringing bacon. And now here, the scribes were, were giving out of abundance. Oh, you guys get it now, right? But the, the poor, it took a little while. But the poor widow, she gave sacrificially. You could say that, yeah, sure, she was being generous, but if that were the case, let's call it generosity, but not just a general generosity, but a sacrificial generosity. It cost her something. It meant something. What does this mean for us? In part, it begins with acknowledging the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, what we're talking about here this morning, it's not just about following advice. The gospel is not about following advice. It's about following a king. Right? That's why we're going through Mark. That's why this sermon series is called Follow Me. We're following Jesus. Now, there's a difference here, right? If we come to church now and we see this Bible as a book of good advice, the authority still resides with ourselves, whether we choose to listen to it or not. And we turn the advice, this Bible, into a means to an end. We treat it as one way to get what we ultimately want, which is probably wealth or health or fulfillment or whatnot. Now with a king, it's different. The authority moves from within to Jesus. Jesus is not the means. He is the end. And yes, that, that means that he does have the authority. As much as we don't like hearing that, he has the authority to tell you what needs to be done. But he also has the authority to do what needs to be done and then offer it to you as good news. In the gospel of the Jesus of Jesus Christ in the cross. And so we recognize Jesus' authority over every facet of our lives. And then we respond in worship and trust and obedience. Jesus is the king, he has the authority, and we belong to him. Now last week, Dr. DeCampos, we had our uh, guest preacher come and, and preach on the passage preceding this. And part of what he was talking about, which is also partly taken up in our passage today, was stewardship. Now, stewardship is not something that we're necessarily used to today. We understand ownership. Stewardship means we don't own it. We're managers of it. We belong to God. Everything we own is a gift from God. Now, in the book, and, and I think the movie too, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien writes about a kingdom called Gondor. I'm going to mention a lot of weird names, so just try and follow along. Or you can watch the movie after, after service today. This, this kingdom, Gondor, had no king for many years. And, and the, king was, the kingdom was waiting for the return of its king. And while they were waiting, they had stewards. Stewards who were placed in charge of the land. And the steward in charge at the time for Gondor, his name was Denethor. As a steward, he held the power of the king, but without the title and perhaps the full honor and the full authority, 
He could make decisions and pass judgment. He received respect and praise from the people. But he had to remember his position. To remember that he was not, in fact, king. Any authority he held derived not from himself, but from the throne. A throne he himself could not rule from or sit in because he was not the king. He had to sit in this not as nice uh, chair below the throne. Now, Thenathor, the steward, he was a horrible steward. He dreaded the return of the king because that meant relinquishing all the power and authority he jealously guarded for himself. This idea of stewardship might be a foreign concept to many of us today. I mean, again, we understand ownership, we work hard, we, we earn money, we purchase something with that money, and so it is ours. Even when we have a mortgage, or at least we, we understand that the bank owns it, perhaps, but we're paying it off, and so at some point, hopefully, after 30 years or whatnot, we're going to own it. Stewardship is something different, though. Stewardship tells us that everything that God gives us belongs ultimately to Him. He is the owner. We're merely stewards or managers in charge of taking care of that which is not ours, but God's alone. Jesus highlighted this even earlier in the passage when he talked about giving back, right? Not just giving, but giving back or rendering to God what is God's. Now that's a hard truth for us to swallow, right? To recognize that in light of Jesus' authority, everything we have, Everything we are is his. And he gives us the opportunity to be stewards of his gifts to us. It's not just money, but there are many other things that we cling tightly to. Because if you were to look deep into some of your own hearts, some of our our own hearts, we would see that we cling tightly to it. We can't live without it because we hold to the very fundamental belief that it whatever that it might be, is mine. My precious. I alone have the authority over this. How difficult it is for us to let go, and, and not just give it to God, but to give it back to God. See, once we, we've obtained it, there's a desire for us to hold on to it, to, to buy into the false notion that we've had it for this long, it's ours. Whether that's our money, the well-being of our children, our future career paths, our relationships, all these things. How difficult it is for us to remember that we do not occupy the throne. There is only one seat on the throne, the throne of our hearts. That authority belongs to Jesus, not me. Denethor was like. He was unwilling to hand over the kingdom to the true king, the one with authority. He ended up taking his own life after years of poor stewardship because he would rather die than give up the power that he thought was his. Now afterwards, his son, Faramir, eventually takes his place. Now Faramir, as it turns out, despite facing the temptation of all that was important to his father, he instead became a faithful steward. When the king was crowned king, when Aragorn was crowned king, it was Faramir who said, Behold the king. 
He was ready to give it all up for his king because he recognized his authority. Likewise, today for us, Jesus is the one with divine authority as our, as your Savior King. And as such, he demands all of us, all of me. And he can do so not simply because he has this authority, but we give it all to him because he first gave it all up for us on the cross. Jesus' authority demands all of me. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that at times we hold very strongly to many different things in our lives because we believe in the depths of our hearts that it is ours. We earned it. And we forget about this gospel of grace. We forget about your ownership, your authority, your goodness, your grace to us. Father, help us to see how good of a God you are. That you are the one in authority. But you're not authoritarian because you laid it all down for us. We ask that we would respond by giving it all up to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.